There's a lot of relieved kids right now. <laughs> I was telling Darren as I was walking in here this morning, when I saw him, I had to quickly go and edit my sermon. Um, I was going to give you, a re- uh, give you a report on some of the behavior that Darren's been uh, carrying out on his sabbatical. But since he's here, you're just going to have to Google it, and it'll all be there. I'm just kidding. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 129. I believe you are on a kind of a journey through the Psalms, and so I would like to share this Psalm with you this morning. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Psalm 29. And I will read it for you. It goes like this. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare and in his temple All say, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. When you were growing up, you eventually came to a very important crossroads in your relationship with your parents. At some point, it first dawned on you, my mom has a life of her own. I thought all she ever did was look after me. I thought that her whole existence was nothing else than making me food, getting me dressed in the morning, taking me off to my preschool, or whatever it was. But then it gradually dawned on me that there's more to my mom than just being my mom. She has friends that are not the moms of my friends. If I'm having a really bad day, she might be having a really good day, and that's fine. This is a huge realization that each one of us needs to come to when we're growing up. And the message, I think, of Psalm 29 that I want to emphasize today is that God has a life of his own. And just as a healthy child realizes that a parent has a life of their own, a healthy Christian eventually realizes that God has a life of his own. God has a life beyond just looking after my needs. It's true. God has loved me. God has sent his son to show me how to live and to die for the forgiveness of my sins. But beyond everything that God does for us, and God does an amazing amount for us, there are still fathomless oceans and oceans of mystery that go on eternally beyond that. And this is what Psalm 20, 
9 can remind us of today. The God described for us in Scripture is infinitely beyond our imagination. And there are several ways in which this psalm tells us that God has a life of his own. First of all, you will notice the name that this psalm uses for God. In most of our translations, this is the Lord. It's in block letters. And what that means is that the word is translating the four letters that we usually pronounce Yahweh. And Yahweh for, the ancient, for ancient Israel was a name that was so sacred that once a scribe had written it into a, tra- into, into a manuscript, it could not be erased. And it was so sacred that observant Jews would never let this name pass over their lips. Instead, when they came to a text like this, they would say Hashem, which means the name. Well, this psalm, Psalm 29, is unusual in that it uses the name Yahweh over eight, it uses it 18 times. And so over and over and over again, we hear this name repeated, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, the glory of his name. Now, do you remember the first time when God gave this name to the people of Israel? It happened in Exodus, in the beginning of Exodus, as Moses was keeping his sheep in the wilderness, when God appears to him, and God shares his name with Moses. Moses sees this tree on fire, the burning bush, and as he approaches this tree to see what's going on, God tells Moses, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then God tells him, I have come to deliver my people from their slavery. I have come to save you. And I am going to use you, Moses, to perform a wondrous work on behalf of my people. But then Moses asks a very silly question. Moses decides that here on holy ground, this is a great place to bring up Moses' favorite subject, which is Moses. And so he asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? As if somehow now, when God is revealing himself to Moses in this holy place, now is the best time to bring up all of Moses' gifts and abilities, his weaknesses and problems. This is now apparently the really important consideration. Well, Moses needs to learn the lesson that this psalm is teaching us this morning, which is that God is far beyond our little narcissisms. And God, in the story of Moses, fortunately, just ignores his question. And he tells something to Moses that is far more decisive and far more important. He gives Moses the divine name. This is a huge gift that God gives to Moses at this point. Moses is shown the name of God, Yahweh. And by giving Moses the name of God... God is giving himself to Moses and to his people. Now, you can already sense that that's a pretty dangerous operation. Moses is being given the name of God, and so in a sense, Moses is being given an inside track to God. But here's the kicker. What is the name that God puts onto Moses' lips? His name is, I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And essentially this name means I am the unnameable. That's my name. 
the one who can never be grasped, the one who can never be possessed. I will be who I will be. That is the God that Moses is being shown. And this is a very harsh irony that Israel will have to learn as it goes through its, 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 its life. God is present to Israel. This is a God who loves Israel. This is a God who gives himself to Israel in revealing the name. But this Yahweh is so wild, so untamable, that you cannot see this presence with your eyes and hope to take another breath. God will deliver you from slavery, but God will never be delivered into your hands. God is saying, I will be your God, but I will not be your God. Do you get the difference? And so the first thing this psalm tells us by the repeated use of this name, Yahweh, is that we are in the presence of someone who can never be grasped. Well, the second thing we are pointed to in this psalm is the voice of the Lord. Beginning in verse 3, we hear over and over, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. This voice is quite something. We have here a picture of the psalmist as a storm chaser. And uh, he sees a cyclone brewing out over the sea. He's standing on the seashore. He looks out and he sees a cyclone cooking. And this storm is coming. And eventually the storm crashes over onto land. And the whole terrain around this psalmist is sent skipping and whirling and thrashing about as the storm just lashes the ground. Thunder and lightning and fierce gales of wind. And all of this cyclone that this psalmist is seeing is the sonic power of the voice of God. This is the Lord merely speaking. God is only saying something. He's just using some words. And immediately creation is just writhing and writhing in the fury of this, of this power. Now this is not some kind of pantheism where creation has become uh, a kind of personified deity. This is creation itself resonating, reverberating with the power unleashed by only the voice of God. And this is the voice that spoke creation into being back in Genesis chapter 1. I want you to think about this for a bit. You, you have a voice, right? And you can get some things done just by speaking. Maybe, maybe you say, can someone get me a coffee from Tim's? And sure enough, your spouse gets up, gets in the truck and drives off to Morris and comes back with a double-double. Or maybe you say, sit, and your dog sits. When you speak, nothing happens unless somebody listens to you, and that somebody either respects you or loves you enough to respond to what you are saying. And our voice has a little bit of authority in it, with a few people, and maybe a dog or two. But you can't do much with cats, and for sure you cannot do anything with a plant or a rock or uh, a mountain. 
And you will say, well, the problem is that the rocks have no ears. Well, the problem is not with the rocks. The problem is your voice. Your voice is not strong enough. Your voice has no authority over rocks. You might say you're shut out of the inner life of rocks. They don't have to listen to you. But the voice of the Lord can move a rock because God has access to a rock in a way that you and I do not have. God can move a whole galaxy by the sheer power and authority of his voice. He can stop a meteor in his tracks. He can throw down a kingdom. He can raise up a Messiah just using his voice. And so what this suggests is that for God to create the universe, for God to deliver us from Egypt, for God to bring us to the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't even have to get off the couch. This God is completely unfathomable to us. And you know, you can't even really say that this is a big God. I know that with our kids, we sometimes sing this song, my God is so big. And that's a great song. I, I, I teach it to my kids. But there is something finally a little bit misleading about that. Because to say that God is so big is to suggest that God is a little bit like other things in creation. The mountain is big. The galaxy is big. The ocean is big. But God is not big. God is not on any scale at all. God can only be measured by himself. And so if all seven billion of us put our heads together and tried to describe this God, tried to name it, tried to come up with some kind of picture of what this God is, it would be hopeless. It's like a blind ant trying to describe Mount Everest. And so what the voice of God in this psalm suggests is the power of God that is not tied up in the world. God can alter the world by his sheer will alone. And when the voice of the Lord has spoken, everyone in the temple can only say one word, and that is glory. Glory. Say it with me. Glory. Well, thirdly, this psalm shows us that God has a life of his own by showing us the absolute calm, the eternal rest, the unbroken serenity that is God in relationship to the world. When we move from verse 9 to verse 10, it's like we're stepping from a rock concert into a soundproof room. And it's really important for us to realize that God has never been stressed for one second about this world or about any of the problems that this world has. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned forever. Notice here that God sits. The storm is rocking, but God is not standing and fighting. There's no struggle here on God's part. There's no burden of work that God has to do. God is not pacing or writhing his hands about this catastrophe. God is sitting. God is at peace. He is at rest. Notice here that it says God sits enthroned. God is the ruler. He's the king. His throne cannot be threatened by all this chaos that's heaving up below. Notice here that God sits enthroned over the flood. 
And so this flood is just sort of foaming and heaving down below, and God sits above the flood. God exists in infinite and eternal quiet and peace. In theology, we sometimes say that God is self-existing. You and I, we depend on so many things, right? Right now, you depend on these pews to hold you up. And the pew depends on the floor, and the floor depends on the rest of the building, and the rest of the building depends on the ground, and the ground beneath it depends on the, on the whole earth beneath that, and so forth. We're dependent in all kinds of directions. We depend on our mother for our birth. We depend on food to keep us living. We depend on air to keep us puffing. We depend on our boss to keep on paying. We're dependent in a million different directions. And all of this depending that we have to do creates a lot of anxiety for us, a lot of stress, because I, my life depends on a whole lot of things over which I have very little control. But God, we need to emphasize, does not depend on anything. God is entirely self-supporting. God doesn't stand on anything. He is self-existing. God depends only on himself. And this is what Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages called the infinite difference between God and creation. God depends on himself, whereas we depend on everything, ultimately on God. And that is why, though the world should roll with wars and destruction, though the earth should shake and tremble like a shack in an earthquake, Though the mountains should fall into the sea, though we may cry out in our own lives, I am in crisis. God is not shaken. God exists from eternity to eternity in absolute happiness. Can you imagine God as an infinitely happy being? And this, I think, can lead us to say some things that need to be said about our world. God is not stressed out by nuclear war. Climate change does not disturb the eternal peace of God's unbroken serenity. Is the world heading for some kind of collision with a massive meteor that's going to smash the planet to dust? Well, God does not watch this approach with a growing sense of alarm, wringing his hands, hoping that somehow this is going to turn out okay. God is not stressed out watching United States and Iran drawing lines in the sand and strutting back and forth like some jacked-up roosters. God is not saying to himself, oh, please, be careful, those are sharp knives. God does not break into a sweat when the nations sweat and swagger around in their drunken stupidity. Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. See, he takes up the aisles like fine dust, he brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. Now at first we might find this a little bit worrying. Does God not care for us? Does he not love his children? How can you love your children without being stressed about them? I can't do that. Can you? But this is exactly why God can love us as much as he does. His love is also 
part of his unbroken perfection. His love is undisturbed. It cannot be changed by the to and fro of the world's affairs. Our love is fickle, right? It kind of goes up and down with the flood. But the psalmist finds incredible strength and peace in this vision of God sitting above the waters, and I think we can as well. Our happiness, our well-being, our peace, the final blessing that we all long for in our lives, this does not rest on some kind of fickle deity who is tossed to and fro by the crises of our lives. We live in the hands of someone who will love us eternally and will love us perfectly. We live in the hands of someone who created the world with his voice alone. We live in the hands of a God whose power, whose beauty, whose glory, whose magnificent perfections just go on and on and on from eternity to eternity. I think we live in an age where we are tempted to be a little bit narcissistic about God, a little bit self-centered. We are we think that somehow God owes us a life. He owes us an explanation that we too have a valid perspective. And so we're often kind of tempted to say, well, I'm only going to worship the God who helps me. I will only serve a God who affirms me. I will only bow to the God who bows to me. Starts to sound like a 30-year-old man who thinks his mom should still be doing his laundry. I think there is a maturity to a relationship with God that comes from recognizing that God is beyond us. We have our needs, yes, and God looks after those, but God goes on infinitely beyond that. There is comfort. There is a quiet trust. There is a settled awareness that the world is going to be okay, that the God who made it has an infinite excess of power. There is comfort in knowing that the God who saves us, the God who loves us, is a God who can never be just about me. The psalmist ends by saying, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord give his people peace. And that is ultimately what I think we can take away from a God who has a life of his own. Let's pray together. And I want to pray using the words of another psalm, Psalm 131, that I think acts as a great response to this psalm. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quiet in my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. My soul within me is like a weaned child. O Lord, I pray that you would teach us to put our hope in you. I pray that you would teach us to grow up. Teach us to recognize that after you have saved us, after you have delivered us, after you have fed us and carried us, there are still oceans and oceans of unfathomable power and mystery and darkness and light in your infinite being that we will never, ever understand. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.
Why don't you stand with us? 